Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. Receiving this message. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. have accessed entry 819.PR3033, certificate number 16114, Mussolini's nose. Now, Adolf Hitler, just to start at the beginning, sure. survived something on the order of 20 to 40 assassination attempts, depending on how you define an assassination attempt. Like, how far does a bunch of guys spitballing at the beer all have to get before you call it an assassination attempt? Well, how do— But his, his record was pretty good. How do you define an assassination attempt? What's your cutoff? What's the— What's the line where you say, ha, that's not a real assassination attempt? It can't be trigger-pulled because lots of assassination attempts, you know, even if you're using a gun, may not get to that point, but there were still weeks of planning, right? You sh- those guys should get credit. They should get a, a der participation uh, tro- trophy. Are you, is that, is that true, though? participation trophy in German? Yeah, der, der trophy scheinen, uh, der uh, uh, <laughs> Are you sure that all it takes is, like, an elaborate plot? Don't you need to actually, like, step forward and and take a risk, throw a bomb, at least jump up on the running board of a car? What if you jump up on the running board of the car and then your gun misfires? I think that's an assassination attempt. Sure. What if you jump up on the running board of the car and it's wrestled away from you before you can try to pull the trigger? Still an attempt, Absolutely. But if it's just you guys, like, if you're just drawing stuff on a napkin— and then one of the guys on the team is like, uh, gets up at a chalkboard and says, you just put us all like in each other's crossfire. You were never a member of the OSS. That doesn't count. Here's the dividing line. If it, go- if it ever goes from napkin to chalkboard, it becomes an assassination attempt. Mm, mm. If you and the boys are just spitballing at the bar, that's one thing. But if you've actually bought chalk and put something up on a wall, sure. now okay. we're talking. Okay. All right. I'll go with that. The chalkboard test. And uh, if it's just you, spit, if it's just John Hinckley Jr. spitballing at home, feeling bad about himself watching Taxi Driver, obviously he doesn't need a chalkboard. So he's got a higher hurdle to clear than somebody who's got a bunch of buddies in the Luftwaffe or whatever. And that's as it should be, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if, if you've got a bunch of guys talking about the plan, 
I feel like you should get some credit for that. Yeah, especially if one of the guys is a government informant, right? The the government's going to take a dim view. Well, yeah, but that becomes tricky. You know, that, what, you have to add up everybody's security clearance to find out how good your assassination plot is? I don't know. It really is a pretty pure democracy, you know? Some guy that can rush a limo at the right time is just as good as having two-thirds <laughs> of the Nazi high command. Well, so we know a lot about uh, the Hitler assassination attempts because it's a very popular topic for a screenplay. But um, yeah, they've made they've made movies. Tom Cruise has tried to assassinate Hitler. He sure did. Wearing an eye patch, but Hitler survived all of these attempts except for one. The one assassin he never could have predicted was the one that finally got a bullet into him. Hitler, and that was himself. Oh, <laughs> spoiler alert. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is Hitler. Well, that's that just goes to show what a supervillain Hitler is. It's true. Like, no matter who you are, you are not safe from all his defalcations. That's and, right. Uh, Even Hitler can't survive. <laughs> Even Hitler needs to watch out. Uh, but Mussolini, who was in many ways a mentor to Hitler, you know, taught Hitler everything he knew about being fascist, survived many fewer. And, and you can see why. I mean... Mussolini, just as a physical specimen, a barrel-chested guy who looks like a Roman emperor in profile, much more impressive if you're trying to cast a dictator for a movie than a, a scrawny little failed painter with a mustache. And Hitler noticed this for sure. You know, walking around the Villa Borghese with this guy, he was like, man, this dude looks like a Caesar. You know, this is what I want. So, you know, Mussolini in profile, Mussolini's nose... Huge influence on Hitler's work, on Hitler's oeuvre. Right. Hitler didn't, didn't have a, a nose of quite the same stature, although I would argue that Mussolini was a mentor in the sense that Hitler learned what to do and what not to do. I don't think Hitler was like so in awe of Mussolini as he was um, taking notes. Yeah, because some things are right. You know, the image is perfect. Like, you know, this is what fascism can be, this kind of virile leather dude striding around his garden, maybe pointing at things with a writing crop. But but you would argue, like, what would you say Mussolini is a counterexample of? Well, what not to do? Oh, well, Mussolini, uh, I mean, there is a clownish aspect to Mussolini, and and I think that was evident at the time. Italian politics are very different from German politics. And I think what plays on the streets of Rome wouldn't play on the streets of Berlin. But, you know, Mussolini made a lot of, he had a lot of adventures that didn't pan out for him. Like he really supported the... Africa. The, well, so yeah, he invaded Ethiopia and got his <laughs> his, his sausage handed back to him. He uh, was very out in supporting Franco and the Spanish Civil War in a way that like reaped the condemnation of the world. He was, he had terrible policies in Libya. Like Hitler was taking notes. There's a lot of what to do and a lot of what not to do in the early career of Mussolini. Now Mussolini, of course, also the victim of a successful assassination attempt in 1945. He winds up hanging from a Rome gas station girder. Milan. Which was... Milan, yes, you're, sorry, you're correct, Milan. Which was just in the news again this week. Did you see this? No. That, uh, that Jim Carrey drew a cartoon of Mussolini and his mistress uh, Claretta, I think, uh, hanging from a gas station as kind of a, usually he just tweets about anti-vaccine stuff, but this was, a, he's, apparently he's against Italian fascism as well. 
And uh, none other than Mussolini's granddaughter, Alessandra, yes. who's now uh, an Italian far-right politician and former European Playboy model, <laughs> um, really was uh, aggravated online that Jim Carrey would would have something mean to say about her grandpa, Mussolini. What? Now, wait Too a minute. Soon, what, apparently. What was he, what was Jim Carrey's point? I think he was trying to say, somebody stop me. No, I don't know. He's just against fascism. But was he saying that, and that he likes uh, to doodle? That vaccination is uh, fascist. <laughs> is that what he was saying? What was he? I wh- think what's the connection. He may think that he he was not making a point about vaccination for a change. I see. I think he was just saying that he's not in favor of fascism, and he wants to express his anti-fascist bona fides by drawing a cartoon of the Mussolini's hanging upside down. Probably not knowing until now that Mussolini has several offspring, grandchildren and great-grandchildren who are influential, headline-grabbing, far-right Italian politicians right now. Like, there's a Mussolini dynasty to this day, which you'd think would be off-putting. And that's another thing that we don't have with Hitler. Exactly. There's no Hitler dynasty. Because Hitler's first victim was Eva Brown before his second successful assassination attempt, ensuring that there were no little Hitlers. So now I'm looking at the tweet. I'm looking at Jim Carrey's illustration. It's like a weird thing to doodle, <laughs> for sure. Um, it feels... It kind of has a scribbly Ralph Stedman kind of quality. It does have a Stedman quality. But he's. it's one of those tweets where it's clear that the tweeter expects the audience to do some heavy lifting in terms of subtext. Like, this is what fascism leads to. Wink, wink. But who are the fascists in Jim Carrey's uh, cosmology? You think it's pediatricians? Well, uh, it could be pediatricians. He could be an anti-Trump person who's saying that the current administration is fascist. Or he could be a Trump supporter who feels that the liberal media is fascist. He could be making a commentary on Benjamin Netanyahu's last-minute strategy to appeal to the far-right in the recent election in Israel. There's a lot a lot of stuff to unpack here, Ken. I assume it's a kind of a ham-fisted attempt to make us think about the rise of fascist or crypto-fascist movements in Brazil, in the United States, in Western Europe. But because he chose Mussolini, he immediately got a response, you are a bastard, from oh. at Alessandro Mussolini. <laughs> you are a bastard. Che bastardo. Bastardando. Um... But to me, the most interesting assassination attempt on Benito Mussolini was not the successful one. It was one of several that happened in the 1920s when he was still consolidating power. He, you know, he became prime minister of Italy in 1922, but he spent the next five years consolidating power, essentially turning Italy into a one-party state with him at the, you know, as the fascist totalitarian dictator in charge of everything. And during that time, there were several attempts. Sure, he was invent, inventing, and that is the thing that Hitler did. Uh, Hitler did follow Mussolini's lead in this sort of gradual legitimizing of fascism. That was a Mussolini kind of invented the job during this period, and making it seem like a patriotic part of your country's past. You know, to remind you of your past glories. In the case of Italy, it would be the Roman Empire. In the case of uh, the Germans, I guess it would be some mythical, yeah, Valhalla. Uh, racially pure, legendary past full of Norse mythology and Wagner opera. But one of the things that, that Mussolini uh, did were, or one of the textbook 
plays is the fake assassination attempt, right? To oh, false flags to make it. It's like the burning of the Reichstag or whatever. You you set up a, a villain in the form of a, a communist assassin, and that gives you then the authority to invoke police powers or to eliminate the uh, opposition parties. False flag operation. Bandera falsa. Que cazzo, eh? But of these legitimate assassination attempts, la matanza legitimata, <laughs> there was one that's quite different from the rest because uh, the assassin is actually the last person you'd expect, a British subject. Mm -hmm. And of course, to look back now and say, ooh, you know, somebody came all the way from England to try to kill Mussolini. What a patriot. In fact, that's getting the story backwards. In the 1920s, at the time when this assassination attempt on Mussolini's nose occurred, he was actually quite popular in Britain. King George V had just awarded him an ancient chivalric order, the, you know, the High Knights of the Bath or something. And he had been uh, complimented in the, the British and other Western papers for having his, you know, his trim, neat followers all dressed alike. Um, they complimented him because his followers were trim? <laughs> yeah, healthy, young masculine guys with their identical black shirts. And speaking of black shirts, by the way, we should stay, stay tuned for the end of the show. We finally have some merch available. If that's what the black shirts makes you think of is I want to buy omnibus merch. Wow. Are, are you, are you embedding a little bit of uh, merch content here in the middle of the show? Stay tuned to the end of the show where you can get an omnibus branded t-shirt and coffee mug. It's certainly a risky ploy to first mention it in a, a situation where you can associate it in the listener's mind with uh, Mussolini's thugs. Right. Because we should make clear, we are, not, we are not arming a paramilitary army in omnibus merch. No, although I'm taking some notes here in terms of if you want your fascist, your nascent fascist government to appeal to uh, the British. Dress well. Have your followers be neat and tidy and dressed well. That's right. Because you can imagine the British stereotypes of the lazy Italians, you know. I went on vacation and the waiter took 20 minutes and then the drink was wrong, you know. <laughs> so the idea that some guy might clean all that up with a more regimented uh, life, you know, that must have sounded very good to them. And of course, you know, the thing that people liked about Mussolini in the 20s is that he promised to keep the Bolsheviks down. He was going to solve Italy's communism problem. And that's what the Western press really liked. So the British subject, who uh, is the other player in our drama here, besides Benito Mussolini, is uh, a woman who could not be more of an opposite to him. Her name was Violet Gibson, and where he is uh, a picture of uh, Roman health and virility, she has a lifetime of health troubles. The interesting thing is that she's kind of a celebrity, Someone with the name of Violet Gibson almost, like, it, she conjures an image of a Victorian consumptive dressed all in black, laying on a, like, a, a, a doily stacked love seat. Is it because she's like a shrinking violet? Or, she, you know, she sounds like some kind of dried flower? No, she sounds like, a, like an Edward Gorey child. <laughs> well, listen to the list of her childhood illnesses. Uh, at age five, she had scarlet fever. At 14, peritonitis. At 16, pleurisy. At 20, she had uh, rubella, German measles. She had so many illnesses that she persuaded that her mom adopted Christian science. Her mom started to look into Mary Baker Eddy's 
teachings just in hopes of figuring out what was going on with her daughter. She absolutely is an Edward Gord. I can see the drawings for each one of those. Rubella, measles, scarlet fever, poor Violet Gibson. You know, you can imagine her hollowed eyes and emaciated frame. And that's exactly right. But she did not start out that way. She was actually... uh, a celebrity and a member of one of the first families of the British Isles. Uh, she was the seventh of the eight children of Edward Gibson, who had been made, he'd been created Lord Ashbourne, the Lord Chancellor of Ireland. Uh-huh. So before the days of the Irish Free State, this guy was the, the head judicial authority of the crown in Dublin. So, you know, Violet spent her childhood being fer- shuttled back and forth between London and Dublin you know, attending the season and all the party whirl. She had a debutante coming out in the court of Queen Victoria. You know, she had all the advantages that any young girl could have in Victorian England. Well, but as Jim Carrey has taught us, just living a life of privilege does not inoculate one against measles. You know, as Jim Carrey has taught us, if you take a 19th century child and do not vaccinate them, they get a whole series of awful diseases. And, you know, her parents were unable to solve her health problems. She herself was not into her mom's Christian science, possibly because she was unable to pray away any of her illnesses. But she did take up theosophy. Was this just a backdoor way to get back into talking about Christian science? Do you feel like (laughs) we didn't cover all the bases before and Mussolini's nose is just three kisses away? The 90 minutes we spent on Mary Baker Eddy before was just not enough for me. We must go deeper. Wait, did you just say theosophy? Yes, she uh, she moved on from Christian science to theosophy, which was Madame Blavatsky's kind of popular spiritual mysticism of the turn of the 20th century, which relied heavily on ancient fish people from Lemuria and Atlantis. Um, so you can see the appeal. Uh, what I love about theosophy is it's very much like the Bono-endorsed coexist bumper stickers, where <laughs> the, the theosophical logo is... A star of David inside a question mark surmounting a swastika on top of a like a, a chain of children dancing around a maypole. I mean, it really has every... I don't know about you, but I'm very skeptical about any religious movement that tries to have your cake and eat it too like that. You know, like the Baha'i, where they're like, no, no, you can be a Baptist Baha'i, you can be a Muslim Baha'i, you can be an African animist Baha'i, it's okay. You know, Baha'i God uh, believes in all these things. I'm like, come on, grow us fine. Tell, tell us what you really think. <laughs> well, you know, you're a mainline religious guy, whereas I am more of a, one of these free thinkers that just throws it all into a potpourri, lets it steep, fill the house with the gentle aroma of all the world's religions, bro. And as long as it's got the fishmen of ancient Lemuria, you're you're down with it, right? Absolutely. As long as I can pray away my sickness, I don't have to vaccinate my kids. I can use swastikas unapologetically and, and have like a very lengthy explanation for why it's an ancient religious symbol. I'm in. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished 
roast beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Uh, after Violet moved on from Theosophy, though, she went completely the other way. She kind of uh, fell under the influence of a Jesuit author and uh, became very Catholic. Uh-oh. And the funny thing is, to her parents, this was the biggest disappointment of all. Well, sure. You know, we have really screwed up. She's because, you know, we, we made the mistake of living in Dublin. He's the Lord Chancellor of Ireland. You can't have a Catholic daughter. <laughs> The, uh, the anti-Catholic feeling was so strong at the time in their circles that converting to Catholicism did not make you a convert. The word that was used was pervert. They would literally say, wow. she's become a pervert. Wow. <laughs> and she runs away from home. You know, she does other things to displease her parents. She kind of moves in with a bohemian scene in London, uh, shacks up with a, uh, an artist, a fine artist in Chelsea, uh, but, uh, but he dies very young after being engaged to her for a year. And her health just gets worse. Uh, the doctors aren't sure what to call it. Like, is it a physical thing like influenza? Is it just hysteria, which is what they called, you know, any uh, kind of mental illness in a female patient at the time? Sure. Nobody has answers. Do, 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 is she an intelligent uh, woman? Is she a charismatic woman? What, what kind of figure does she cut in her social circle at the time? You know, we don't have a lot of her firsthand. By the time she starts leaving writings... Spoiler alert, she's kind of gone off the deep end, and the writings don't really make much sense. But she seems to be very intelligent and a creative and artistic soul if she's, you know, if she's hanging out with this artsy Chelsea scene. The problem is I think she never really has a chance to turn into the kind of grown-up she could be because of just the endless array of Edward Gorey-type malingering diseases. In 1913, her father dies. In 1922, her favorite brother dies. And the health problems just keep coming. So it's both mental and physical. She gets a rare kind of cancer called Paget's disease, hmm. which uh, ends in her getting a full mastectomy. Uh, and then she gets a, a bad case of appendicitis that never really goes away, leaving her with abdominal problems for the rest of her life. So there's really no part of her torso that is just not being riddled by awful Victorian illnesses. She should should have started a band. <laughs> I thought you were going to say she should have started like an essential oils uh, multi-level marketing <laughs> company. She could have cured everything. But you see her as some kind of wasting away Nick Drake type. Yeah, right. It's a, folk I mean, she sounds like Kurt Cobain. She did not. She was unable to channel her problems into her art, unfortunately. Uh, instead, she seemed to kind of channel them into religious fanaticism and violence. Um, following a nervous breakdown in the 1920s, she was committed. And uh, even after she got out, religion was not really great for Violet. Um, at one point, she was found wandering Kensington with a butcher's knife. With uh, Back at home, the, her family found a Bible open to the story of Abraham and Isaac. And if you remember your book of Genesis, you know, she's out trolling for a, a sacrificial lamb. She's, she's looking for victims. Right. So, uh, well, is she hoping, uh, is the story uh, of Abraham and Isaac, is she hoping to sacrifice a lamb and have that lamb pay for her 
sins in such a way that it will relieve her suffering? Yeah, she seems to think... How she, does a sacrificial lamb work exactly? <laughs> she, in her case... Asking she, for a friend. She seems to think... <laughs> do, you have, do you have something in mind to cure your sleep apnea? You're going to go catch a washing bear and see what you can do? <laughs> Uh, in her case, she does seem to think that she can curry some kind of favor with God through a bloody and violent act. She becomes obsessed with the word mortification uh, and begins writing it in all her journals and, you know, filling scrapbooks and sketchbooks and notebooks with the word, you know, different forms of the word, you know, mortify, mortification. So medically to this day, mortification can be any kind of, you know, dead tissue. It's necrosis or gangrene. And we use it... Uh, idiomatically to mean, you know, a sense of humiliation. But in the religious sense, mortification is some kind of abstinence, you know, denying your bodily passions and appetites to subject them to God, even if that causes discomfort. It's a, it's a whole hair shirt thing. But in her case, she decided that it was not enough for her to suffer. She really thought mortification required death. It required a victim, someone to die. And she thought the way that she could get right with God was to cause the death of someone else. This doesn't sound very theosophical. <laughs> I think at this point she's moved, she's learned everything she can from the fishmen of Lemuria. I see. And, you know, maybe she's picked up everything she can from her flagellating Catholic penitents. And now she's kind of creating her own roadmap, man. Yeah. Like, she's in front of the chalkboard now. I get it. I get it. Uh, in 1924, she moves with an Irish maid to Rome, and her friends are worried. They think she's moving to Rome with some kind of plan in mind. In fact, she has a friend named Enid who specifically thinks, uh-oh, Violet's moving to Rome. She's going to kill the Pope. Oh, the Pope? Yeah, like she thinks she's picked out a victim. And obviously, like, who is higher profile in Rome than the Pope? Uh, Enid turns out to be very close, in sure. fact. This is the plot of The Godfather Three. <laughs> Immobiliary. Uh, Violet and her maid move into kind of a dangerous, rundown criminal neighborhood in Rome where they live in an old convent, and they sit mostly doing jigsaw puzzles. Mm. So now she kind of is fitting into this idea of the, the spinster, English spinster abroad, trying to see something of uh, Europe without dabbling in any of its decadence or sin. Right. Except that this story does not end the way an E.M. Forster novel might, because her battles with mental illness continue. In 1925, she, instead of choosing the Pope, she chooses a different victim herself. She's sitting at home one day with her jigsaw puzzle. She tries to shoot herself in the chest, but misses. The bullet misses her heart, passes, I'm not quite sure about the anatomy of how this is usually reported, passes through her rib cage and lodges in her shoulder. Is that even possible? Uh, it's only possible if Lee Harvey Oswald fired the gun. <laughs> the bullet passes through her ribcage, turns a corner in midair, mind Goes you. Goes through J Governor John Connolly. <laughs> Governor John Connolly, who is, uh, you know, probably six years old at the time and not in Rome, <laughs> suddenly finds himself in this convent. Uh, but she survives this first assassination attempt. Um, but the following year... Things are getting very black indeed for Violet. Her, her mom has passed away. She now really has almost no one left in the world. And I assume that is not incidental. That must have been quite a blow because just one month later, in April 1926, she has chosen a new target. Uh, Il Duce himself, Benito Mussolini, the beloved leader of fascist Italy. 
1925-26 is, um, this is like the big year in Mussolini assassination attempts. Yeah, there are a series of other assassination attempts of which uh, I'm not super informed. What, what do you want to say about those other attempts, John? Well, let's see. There was, uh, <clears throat> see, these were the assassination attempts that were the false, well, some of them, I guess, were the false flags uh, and some of them were actual flags that Mussolini used to suspend normal political culture and put himself into a position where he was the, like, all-powerful Il Duce. There was a, in 25, there was a, a guy by the name of Zanaboni, Tito Zanaboni. So the, what's crazy is that within the space of a year, Tito Zanaboni tried to kill Mussolini, and then Entio Zamboni also uh, tried to kill Mussolini later on, although that, it might be one of those false flag ones. Wait, really? Yeah. He was killed by a Zanaboni? He was shot by a Zanaboni and a Zamboni? Well, not actually shot. So Zanaboni was one of these situations where he was like a powerful political uh, or a known political entity in Italy at the time. And he, so uh, l l let me ask you if this passes the assassination attempt test. He set up a rifle and had it pointed at where Mussolini was going to give a speech. Mm -hmm. But then uh, he was ratted out by somebody and arrested before firing a shot. And there's a lot of suspicion that, in fact, the whole thing was just a false flag. It was he, He's like a fall guy because Mussolini used this as a pretext. And Tito Zaniboni was sentenced to prison. He wasn't executed for this attempt and then got out of prison when Mussolini fell from power and uh, was like uh, later on became a like a politician, an Italian politician. See, this is tricky because I, I feel like it should hinge on what's in his heart. Like if he actually means to kill Mussolini with his rifle, then I think, yeah, setting it up facing a balcony, that should count as an assassination plot, whether there was a chalkboard or not. But then later, the Zamboni assassination, which happened, some there was a, there was another guy in between that threw a bomb at him and missed. But uh, Zamboni, see, those were the good old days, just chucking a bomb at a guy. We don't see that anymore. Well, I, like a guy with a hissing black bomb. That used to be the default way of killing somebody. Right, and I don't know if you've ever tried to throw a bomb at some at a moving car. Oh, sure. But you really do get some stage fright in that moment. You don't want to throw it too hard. You don't want to throw it too soft. You overthink the throw. This is the problem. <laughs> well, think about the additional timing issue you have that you don't have with a gun. Like you need to get the bomb into the car with split second timing such that no deputy can be like, hey, this looks like a hissing bomb from a video game. I'm going to throw it out of the car. Right. Like it's got to explode right as people are seeing it. I mean, you kind of want to underhand it a little bit. The car might be moving faster than you thought or slower. It feels like there are a lot... History could have gone a lot differently if a few of these bombs had reached their target. Like the briefcase bomb, you know, was on the wrong side of the table leg or whatever. This is just... It just feels like if you're going to blow somebody up with a bomb, like, like hand it to them, you know? I feel like it shouldn't look like a bomb. It shouldn't be a black sphere with a hissing fuse. Like, that's the whole problem. Somebody will just chuck that out of the limo. But let's say it looked like an edible arrangement. If it looked like a bunch of bananas? If, <laughs> if, if you're driving in an open car and somebody steps out of a crowd and, and like, underhand tosses you, like, nine bananas. 
Because first of all, you're surprised because you you were not expecting someone to throw you a bunch of bananas. And then you're like, oh, awesome, potassium. Sure. And then you realize it's a potassium bomb. (laughs) Like your first two impulses are going to be like, I'm going to hold on to this. And it's only, you know, the third impulse when you might be like, what if these bananas conceal uh, a detonator? Right. Why are these bananas? And by then it's probably too late. Bananas, right, uh, (laughs) reputedly uh, often harbor tarantulas. So you might think this might be a different kind of assassination attempt, like a spider assassination attempt. Super unreliable assassination attempt, by the way, and always used in James Bond movies. Like, let's lower a centipede onto this guy and see what happens. As a politician, shoot him. as a former politician, I can say that if I were riding in an open car and someone tossed me a bunch of bananas, my first thought would be, now I can hand these bananas out to children on this parade route and be a hero to the people. That's the old Jeff Bezos plan. Like, I don't have to actually solve any problems. People will love me if I give them each a free banana. And he's not wrong. Uh, but I, I should say that Anteo Zamboni, the second Zamboni, not the Zambonini, not the uh, Zanaboni, but the, the Zamboni kid, he shot at Mussolini with a gun and the crowd, this was a 15-year-old kid, the crowd spontaneously lynched him in the street. Wow. And only later was it suggested that maybe that kid was a fall guy. The whole thing was just another sort of fascist plot. And it was the assassination attempt that uh, enabled Mussolini to create a secret police. So some of these assassination attempts don't really hold water in the eyes of history. They seem pretty convenient, right? Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, if you were going to set up a secret police, I bet you had that plan in the works before a 15-year-old kid stepped out of a crowd. And it's clear that Mussolini's guys are looking, they're starting at the back of the phone book when they're trying to find <laughs> their, their, their Manchurian candidate types. <laughs> it's like, who, whose name starts with a Z that we can get all riled up? I mean, this is actually true. Both things are end up being true of Violet Gibson's attempt on Mussolini's life in that, first of all, it leads to a very angry, lynchy crowd, but also, second, that it does turn out to be very politically convenient for Mussolini, even though Violet Gibson appears to have been totally sincere. There, I don't think there's any way you could have manipulated her other than go back in time to the 1890s and make sure she gets... Scarlet fever, peritonitis, pleurisy, and German measles. Yeah, you could have manipulated her by suggesting that you can pray away disease. On April 7th, 1926, Viola Gibson apparently reads that Mussolini is due to appear at fascist party headquarters in Rome. And so she leaves her convent carrying three items. She has a little ripped-off corner of an envelope on which she has written the address of fascist party headquarters uh-huh. in Palazzo Dilatorio. Just look for the big eagle. <laughs> She has a rock in case she has to take out a windshield. Right. She's a real MacGyver for a for right. a kind of emaciated old lady. Um, so, so so far we've got rock and paper. Now, does she also have scissors? <laughs> her me- <laughs> her metaphorical scissors are a LaBelle revolver, which she has wrapped in a black veil, like a some kind of Agatha Christie character or you know, gothic heroine. <laughs> Johnny Cash uh, protagonist. She is just a few months away from her 50th birthday, but she looks a decade older. She is a withered, emaciated old woman who has been in bad health 
for you know longer than I've been alive. Couldn't be more different. Couldn't be a greater contrast between her and the the muscular nationalist Duce, who often likes to appear shirtless because he thinks he looks so great and inspiring to his people. You know, the less he's wearing. So this little tiny old British woman arrives at uh, Palazzo della Torre, where an ecstatic crowd is acclaiming Mussolini's arrival. They're cheering, Viva il Duce! Viva il Duce! As he, you know, strides through the crowd, um, smiling masterfully at all, friend of all. He had a great stride. He really did stride. He strode. Like, it's, it's awful. We're currently living in a fascist dictatorship, but we don't even have a, a, a leader with a good stride. We have the waddling kind of autocratic leader. It's I can't even get on his plane. Very sad, very sad. Yeah. Uh, and Viola Gibson pulls out her revolver hidden in the black veil, takes dead aim at Mussolini's head from very close, and fires just as he kind of leans his head back and turns to offer his smile and profile to a different part of the crowd. And as a result, instead of entering his temple and changing history, the bullet goes right through Mussolini's nose, bloodying it. Oh. Direct hit on uh, Il Schnazzolo del Duce. Oh, Mussolini's nose. She tries to fire again, but the gun misfires. Come on, Um, Violet. (laughs) She's an old lady. Her hands are shaking, John. She's 49 years old. (laughs) She's like 89 in the body of a 49-year-old. I know you're very offended at this because you are a little... I'm still a little younger than Violet Gibson at this point. You're a tiny bit older. I just turned 50. I I could procure (laughs) myself a gun that could fire twice with all of my resources. You feel like you could still be assassinating fascists with your guitar at this point. That's right. This guitar kills fascists for sure. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. And Mussolini apparently is very good in a crisis. Like, uh, you know, his kind of brand of confident masculine swagger has not been underestimated because you know, he tells the crowd, uh, do not be afraid. This is a mere trifle, you know? Like, he he laughs it off. Oh, this is a real Teddy um, Roosevelt move, right? Where does he give the rest of the speech with a bullet lodged in his chest or his nose? Almost. He has a, a Band-Aid, a piece of, you know, sticking plaster applied to his nose as the crowd goes after Violet Gibson. Um, when he's told who the assassin was, he says, fancy a woman, and, and tells his aides that... Uh, he knows he'll survive because he wants a beautiful, manly death, not at the hands of one of those, quote, 
old, ugly, repulsive women who come from abroad in groups. No, no, you want to die. If you're going to die at the hand of a woman, you want her to be stabbing you while you're making love. I li- yeah, you want a you want a femme fatale from a Bond movie. Yeah. I like how the the English uh, contempt of the the lazy Italian waiters and hotel keepers has kind of its reverse here, where Mussolini clearly is fed up with uh, Northern Europe sending all its spinsters down to annoy his bartenders and baristas and and uh, <laughs> hoteliers. <laughs> you know, like he's always disliked these old ladies with their frowns and their big hats, and now one of them tries to shoot him. Can you believe it? So he leaves immediately for a trip to Libya with everything intact except for, uh, you know, literally his nose bloodied but unbowed. Violet Gibson's about to be lynched by the mob in the piazza there, but she is saved by the police who drag her, I guess, into the palazzo and interrogate her in a room where uh, that contains the giant marble foot from a huge colossal statue of the Emperor Constantine, which is, again, something straight out of a Bertolucci movie. And uh, they revive her with brandy and throw her in jail and try to figure out what to do with her. It's a, it's a tricky diplomatic situation. Not only has someone tried to kill Il Duce, it's a, it's a foreign subject. Well, this, you know, uh, as we see later with the, the Zamboni attempt, uh, the crowd in other situations cannot be restrained. So I wonder what it was about this little, this kindly little old lady, this gun-wielding, rock-carrying, <laughs> envelope-ripping assassin, why it was that the police intervened and didn't let i mean maybe it could have just been as simple as a crowd's reluctance to distribute street justice to a little old lady but somehow she makes it out of this this throng she somehow gets out yeah maybe it's just by virtue of uh of seeming to be a a confused old lady is the only thing that saves her life although i don't know like I, i wouldn't have thought that gender would necessarily stop a bunch of young Italian guys from beating on somebody. Really? I don't know. Think about Sonny Corleone and Connie, you know? Yeah, that's true. Uh, In the end, Violet is jailed for months as they try to figure out the crucial question of her case, which is, is she a political criminal? You know, should she be treated as having committed the worst crime you you can commit in fascist Italy? Shooting the Duce's nose? Or is she just a crazy old lady. Uh, she tells her interrogators that an, it, it was an angel who steadied her arm, which seems like a weird thing to say after you miss, right? Yeah, well, but it, it, it goes to make the uh, crazy old lady point a little bit more emphatically. I guess. Um, you know, hundreds of witnesses are brought in. You know, people have dozens of different theories her family in England, what survives of it, is just mortified that she has, you know, <laughs> that she's embarrassed the family. You know, today you would think it's a pretty good deed, trying to kill Benito Mussolini. But they feel awful about it. Um, you know, they, they write apology letters. They congratulate Mussolini on, on coming through their encounter with, with their weird relative, <laughs> his encounter with their weird relative. Good job, sir. Well done. And what was Mussolini's take on this? Uh, it appears to have been beneath his notice, although, you know, he must have liked the political fallout, which is that he looks invulnerable and, you know, the crowd feels 
sympathetic to him. And, he, you know, he seems like a heroic survivor type overcoming countless obstacles and enemies sent against him. An, an interesting footnote is that Violet's brother, Willie, shows up in Italy trying to secure her release. But like Violet, he is converted to Catholicism, uh, kicking himself out of his father's inheritance, but has joined an organization called the Gaelic League, which is all about preserving Scotch-Irish culture in all its forms. So he ends up wandering around Rome in a saffron kilt, uh, <laughs> And rumors spread that the sporin, the you know the the is it, what's like the pouch at the front of the kilt? Is that what it is? It's a pouch, right? Oh, uh, your little your little leather bag. Yes, your yeah. little scrotal stand-in. Yeah, uh, that he is carrying a pet tortoise in his in the sporin in his kilt. So he becomes a figure of great curiosity in Rome. In the end, uh, Violet's doctors, after performing months of grueling tests on her declare that she's a paranoiac, that she's an, a mad woman, essentially, and obviously a degenerate, um, right. you know, a woman of her age who never had a family, you know, like what kind of depraved woman would do something like that? Of course, somebody like that would have it in for our beloved Duce. A spinster hysteric. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's a nice foil for the swaggering, blustering masculine dictator to have, a, you know, an, an easily stereotyped woman that he can toss in jail and then send home in disgrace. Oh, he sent her home. He let her go. Yeah, she is eventually released into the care of her sister after several months. Um, she writes a letter thanking her, her jailers and hops on a train to Paris. Uh, and she does not realize that her, you know, those few days she has in France before she returns home to London are the last free days of her life. Because after she returns to England, she's institutionalized and spends the rest of her life in a series of asylums. For the most part, she's a model patient. But every April, I guess on the anniversary of her, of her great assassination attempt on the Duce's nose, she does become violent. She even uh, she attempts suicide by hanging in 1930. She spends a lot of her time writing letters to famous people, letters to Churchill, letters to then Princess Elizabeth, you know, now Queen Elizabeth II, but no one ever posts them. So we don't know what kind of wackadoodle things she wanted to tell Churchill. All she wanted was a Pepsi, but her mom wouldn't give it to her. <laughs> After Mussolini dies, you know, there starts to be some revisionism like, hey, this Crazy lady tried to kill this guy who turned out to be pretty awful. And some of her old friends do try to release her. But by this time, her decades in confinement have really done a number on her mind. It's been 20 years. Oh, no. she's, a, she's now kind of a troubled woman who whacks her fellow patients with broom handles. She believes that her moods control the weather. Well, I mean, yeah, I believe that. That's, that's not unreasonable. Right. But whacking her fellow patients with broom handles, that's, that's beyond the pale. I mean, believing that your moods control the weather, that's a victimless crime. I don't know. I feel like whacking your fellow patients with a broom handle is kind of, seems within like normal, normal range too. Um, she seems eminently reasonable to me now. How is it that she has survived? Uh, she was like barely hanging on at age 50 and now here she is 75 living still like, uh, she's unkillable it seems like. By the time of her death in 1956, she weighed less than 84 pounds. You know, she had shrunk away to nothing. How old was she in 1956? She was turning 80 yeah. that year. Yeah, all right. So it's, it's, like the, it's like the character from Greek myth that uh, 
asked for immortality but forgot to add eternal youth. You know, she lived forever, but she was sick and unhappy the entire time. Um, so she outlived Mussolini by over a decade, and not a single person attended her funeral after her death in 1956. But it's an interesting question, you know, like how would history have been different without this woman? I mean, if she gets a couple inches to the left and Mussolini dies in the mid-20s, that's probably early enough that, uh, you know, he never inspires Hitler, for example, with his vigorous vision of, of a fascist Europe, right? Wow, we're going to we're going to do the alternate history adventure except in this case it's Violet Gibson that is the the wheel on which all of the 20th century turns. Oh, Violet. And if she's just an inch off in the other direction and she misses entirely, then maybe we never get the or you know, or if she loses her envelope with the address on it, you know, maybe you we never get this event that like these other attempts helps Mussolini, uh, you know, gain popular sympathy. You know, this was an attempt that made him look very good and wasn't one of these uh, milestones that helps him consolidate his power. So it turned out to be worst case scenario, but, uh, you know, if it had gone an inch in either direction, history would have been very different, you know? Uh, like Mussolini lived, but he, he did so by a nose. You should be in jail for that. <laughs> Like a fascist prison? You, you should spend the rest of your life in an institution whacking your fellow inmates with broomsticks for that last lame, lame attempt to end this episode. And that concludes Mussolini's Nose. Entry 819.PR3033, certificate number 16114 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era and that it has not been shut off by some near-future dictator who believed that it was a pretext for him to establish a police state, or, or she, for that matter, our near-future dictator could be a woman. She could be the one that decides that some insult on social media is all she needed to close down the internet. She could fake an attempt on her life with a real Zamboni. She could be run over by a Zamboni and use that to consolidate her power. She could be uh, doing a stump speech on the campaign trail with a, the end of an envelope, a rock, and a malfunctioning Italian <laughs> automatic pistol in her pocket and decide that the omnibus project is the thing, uh, that, that our prescience is, is a threat to her her uh, her control and her rule. Uh, but you can... I like how you straight up decided that it is a woman. No. I'm pretty sure that... Uh, After further thought... Just like Nixon opened China and Mussolini made the trains run on time, both things we know are false. I feel like the first true American totalitarian will be a woman. It could be Alessandra Mussolini Aless Alessandra coming over. Mussolini. It could be actress Anne Hathaway. Yeah, that's right. It could be uh, it could be like uh, Melanie Griffith. Uh, you should go uh, while you still can, while the law still allows you to enjoy our Twitter and Facebook and Instagram feeds. Uh, you should go see uh, at Ken Jennings at John Roderick. You should go to at Omnibus Project on all those different sites. You should go pick up our. 
pick up the thread of our mail truck and is does couple mean two or three uh, based <laughs> fan site uh, Facebook futurelings. Um, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. I think most importantly, though, we want to hip you to a new opportunity as a listener of the Omnibus podcast. We don't know what era you are listening to this in, but if you somehow manage to listen to this entry in a timely fashion, you can take advantage of a fashion opportunity not accorded to any other temporal period, right, John? That's right, Ken. Uh, this fashion opportunity takes the form of a Futurelings t-shirt, which is available for a limited time. Uh, the shirt comes in blue or black, but it in no way uh, represents our desire to put together an army of black shirts, Natalie dressed. Or blue shirts. Or blue shirts. Well, actually, I'd love an army of blue shirts. Uh, to take our case to the British Parliament, impress the Prime Minister, put a stop to Brexit, overturn the Trump administration, and put in the seat of power Melanie Griffith, our new overlord. We welcome our Melanie Griffith overlords. <laughs> we welcome our new working girl. <laughs> anyway. To be more precise, the, uh, the blue shirt says Futurelings and has some... Futureling uh, art drawn by me, drawn one half of the Omnibus Brain Trust. by Ken Jennings. This is actual Ken Jennings artwork. And the black shirt has the Omnibus logo in yellow. So you have your choice between the Omnibus shirt or the Futureling shirt. They're both delightful. Where do they get them, John? Go to cottonbureau.com slash people slash Omnibus. That's Cotton Bureau, C-O-T-T-O-N-B-U- R-E-A-U dot com slash people slash omnibus. And for a very limited time, you can get your order in for one or both or all of those shirts so that when you meet another futureling coming through the rye, uh, they don't have to speculate what form you have taken. If you are a sentient gas, uh, the other futureling will recognize you by your T-shirt. By your T-shirt shall they know you. Uh, also, you can... How is the sentient gas going to put on and wear the t-shirt, John? That is up to the sentient gas. Have you never seen uh, the most beautiful video I ever made of a t-shirt just swirling in an eddy of wind? It was... Are you the Kevin Spacey character was, in, uh, in American it Beauty? It was truly a sentient gas the entire time. I can kind of imagine that. I think uh, if, if you're a sentient guest, you have, you've solved a lot of problems, and how to put on a T-shirt is probably just small potatoes for you, right? That's right. I mean, if you are a sentient guest and you can't wear a Futurelings T-shirt, how sentient are you? How gaseous are you, really? I call into question your whole identity. Well, you were assuming that these people can't spell the word bureau, so they're already probably insulted that you think a sentient guest doesn't know how to spell do you bureau. Know how, do you know how many stabs I have to take at spelling the word bureau every single time I try to spell the word bureau? It ta- I, I try every, every permutation every time, and I have since I was in sixth grade. Bureau, bureau, but bureau, 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 B-U-R-E-A-U, bureau.
Uh, also, futurelings, if you want to mail us something, um, if you want to order a futurelings t-shirt, wear it, and then send it to us. I don't know why you would, <laughs> but if you did want to do that or send us any other thing, you uh, can send it to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Listeners from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survives before an army of Melanie Griffith jackbooted thugs walk all over the human face forever. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>